the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Innovators Network. Kim McNicholas on innovation. Spotlighting successful entrepreneurs, innovators, investors, and industry experts. Their stories and insights can help you become better informed, better educated, and a better investor. Your host is Emmy Award-winning anchor, reporter, and writer Kim McNicholas. Kim has been a journalist at Forbes magazine, a Fox News Channel contributor, vetted more than 3,000 startups, and has been a mentor for entrepreneurs around the globe. Now, Kim McNicholas on innovation. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited about this show. We have someone that I have been trying to get for a long time. She is one of my idols in technology. It is Veronica Serra. She is the most sought after investor in all of Brazil. And I think soon the world, she's one of the investors in Snapchat as well. And she is coming up in just a moment. But first, a previous guest, Sydney Sloan, the CMO of Alfresco, which is a software company focused on improving processes within the enterprise. They have a new study that was just released in partnership with Forbes Insight. And I wanted her really quickly to share the key results, which I think you could apply in your own business. Business. Sydney, thank you for joining us. Hi, Kim. Thank you very much. Yes, just completed and released our findings this week. And what we were trying to see was how do organizations continue to compete against the fast startups? So there's this notion out there called digital transformation, and it's these large enterprises that basically have to reinvent themselves right. so they can compete with the startups that are using technology as their strategic advantage. What we call the disruption from below. Exactly. And so how do they prevent that disruption from below based on your results? Yeah, what we did find, we interviewed over 300 uh, CIOs and found that one of the biggest drivers is that it needs to be an initiative that's driven from the top. So 49% of the fastest growing companies had their CEO leading the change, the transformation, empowering these organizations to basically reinvent themselves. Mm -hmm. They really do need to reinvent themselves. How so? There are three key levers that we found. The first was adopting a customer-first and user-first strategy, so really putting the customer at the center. And by doing that, by putting user experience teams in place and having dedicated resources for customer journey thinking. So really putting the customer at the heart of everything they do. The second was having a committed approach for being open. It's it's about them and their ecosystem that's going to have to compete. And so how they think about openness, how open they are to new ideas and, and empowering their um, employees to bring those ideas in-house and have those adopted. And last but not least is reimagining their business model. So that's a big risk, which is why I think it has to be CEO-led, because they have to rethink completely the way that they've been doing business in the past. I think so as well. What does this mean for small startups? Well, they definitely have an advantage. I, I was at a conference recently and was talking to an executive from a 
old insurance company. And, and he said they're losing their new investors right and left to these new startups because they're fast moving. Millennials want to use their technology, their mobile first and their thinking, and they can innovate faster. So for startups, I mean, I, I think it means don't be afraid to take on, but you have to use different approaches in how you're going to compete. You're not going to beat the incumbent by playing by their game or their rules. I agree. So where can people find out more? Uh, so you can come to uh, alfresco.com, and uh, it's lo- loaded on our website as well as on the Forbes Insight channel. So there's uh, ForbesBrandVoice.com. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Hey, Sydney Sloan. Great talking to you. Now I'd like to bring in Veronica Sarah, the most sought-after investor in all of Brazil, and I think soon the entire world. She, as I said, she is my idol. I Ever since I've met Veronica, I think she's on the line now, I have just thought the world of you, Veronica. Hi, Kim. How are you? So good to speak to you. Good to talk to you. Where are you calling in from today? So Where in the world? I'm in, I'm in Sao Paulo right now. Oh, you are? Oh, you're pretty much, you're pretty much home. Yes, in Brazil. <laughs> I was last week in New York and um, traveling a lot. I had my 20th reunion from Harvard two weeks ago. Wow. I've been all over the place. But um, anyway, very happy to be here. And great to have you. And Veronica and I met actually through uh, the Extreme Tech Challenge, which is the world's largest startup competition in partnership with Bill Tai. He used to be with uh, Charles River Venture Partners. He's brought five companies public. He's um, he's pretty much <laughs> the brainchild behind the Extreme Tech Challenge with the top 10 present live on stage at the world's largest consumer electronics show in Las Vegas, CES. And the top three go on to present to Sir Richard Branson on his private island. And Veronica, you've been a judge for quite a few years. So you have quite the insight <laughs> into what the judges look for. You know, what's interesting is that we, the, the XTC actually started um, two years before when we were doing the Latin America Startup Challenge, and then Bill uh, was in Necker when he wanted to try to get to Argentina for the finals, actually to Punta del Este for the finals of this Latin Startup Challenge, and he invited Richard to go to see if he could get a ride, and so um, Richard couldn't make it, but the next year he said, why don't you do it here? And so Bill was fast enough to say, yeah, why don't we do it here? And so our Latin American Startup Challenge became a global challenge with the semifinals at the CS and, and finals at Necker. I so we're, love we're in the third year already doing that. Yes. And I hear you're, are you going to be the judges chair this year? Are you selecting the judges this year? Yeah, so I'll be helping coordinate the judges. So this year, I, I uh, in January at the CS, I was a judge, and then in, in Necker, I was helping coordinate the judges. So what we try to do is bring people from various backgrounds, you know, of technology, investment, or even, you know, a lot of operating experience to come and sit and have a diversified but experienced um panel to to be able to talk to the entrepreneurs. So this year we had like Tom Siebel from Siebel Systems. Um, We had, you know, Richard himself and there were lots of very cool people in the island. Oh, yeah. It's always a fantastic group of people. How did you, by the get your start? I mean, you went to Harvard, but how did you get your start um, in business and technology? So I actually started a long, long time ago. literally almost right after I graduated. So I was working in New York. I did my summer at this um, 
place called Lucadia, which is a listed company like in many Berkshire. And um, right after I worked there in my summer, I was half my summer there and half at Goldman, I joined them full-time in New York. And, um, and then I wanted to move back to Brazil because I met my, my then-to-be future husband. Mm-hmm. And I changed jobs immediately um, to, to move. And it was a fund who had a, a, an office in New York, but when I said I had to move to Brazil, they said, oh, just find, uh, find an office there and you can work. Uh, with us from there and look at investments in the region. And it was really open-ended. I could look at anything, so public, private. Um, they were very flexible. It was kind of long-term capital for two families. And wow. then what happened is I soon got engaged into technology. It was something that I thought was very interesting. And and funnily enough, we, we started investing and they sort of backed some of the ideas that I that I had of companies to to, to invest, and one of them was, for example, a company called Jamelo, which was the previous version of what we call cloud today. So they were buying those EMC machines and doing storage, managing storage and information for clients. So you really um, got into the geeky stuff right away. Yeah, well, I, I just met those entrepreneurs, I think, in part through Endeavor, which is this organization that today I'm in the global board of, and that, you know, has some amazing people participating, like Reed Hoffman's in the board and uh, Edgar Bronfman's the chairman and Linda Rothenberg is is the CEO. And one of the co-founders, Peter Kellner, was with me at Harvard, so he got mm. me involved in that. And so I, I got engaged with entrepreneurs from the region who were seeking, you know, mentorship and advice and, you know, just helping um, – really uh, build the ecosystem here by sharing and learning and so forth. So I got to know a bunch of those entrepreneurs, uh, some of them through Endeavor, and early on started helping them and and investing. And so I I invested in like five companies at the time. One was a storage company, a data storage company, Mm -hmm. which is today what, what cloud is. But at the time, you know, banks and big clients didn't want to give their information and have them far away from them. So the company used to buy machines and place them in the clients, but they would actually help manage that information. Um, then we also invest, invested in a company called MobiLogic, which, uh, which was a mobile payment company. So imagine with analogic phones what it was to do mobile payments so really early on. There was another one uh, in education, so online education called the Denexo. There was an anti-fraud company called um, Decidir, and there was a company called Latinarte, which was selling art online. So those were my like early days of investing through the fund. And then one of the where, where I got like really um, deep into it was there was a company called Patagon, which was kind of an e-trade of Latin America as as concept. And the the partners of my fund said, no, uh, we're not interested. And I said, would you mind if I get involved? And so that company got funded by Chase Capital at the time, this woman called Susan Siegel, who was leading it. And they, they raised $5 million. It was still at early stages. And then a year and a half later, you know, they were in, um, you know, probably seven or eight countries. And they sold for $750 million to Santander, to the bank. So it was a huge home run at the time. You know, that value was in... This was in the year 2000. So that really was the home run for you. That was really the catalyst for you. It was my you. first 
it was my first big home run. Mm-hmm. And so I left the fund and started my company Pacific at that time. Wow. And so I got together with, with the founders of Patagon and of other companies who, who other entrepreneurs who had sold. So this guy called Andy Freire, who today is like a head of innovation for the Argentine government. He had built um, a company called OfficeNet, which he sold to Staples.com. So we kind of put our holdings together of what we owned personally. Like we had a bunch of stock and startups. And then I started to manage that early on. And there was Mercado Libre, for example, who's a, today one of the biggest marketplaces in the region, mm. is the leading. I think last time I looked at the stock, they were probably trading at around 13 plus billion dollars. Wow. Cap. And that company was, we were very early on there. So they IPO'd in, in 2008. Um, and then I joined the board. They, they IPO'd at $850 million. And then in like nine years, they grew to $13 billion. So they just replaced Yahoo as top 100 um, in the top 100 index. That's amazing. Coming up right here on Kim McNicholas on Innovation, we'll have more with Veronica Sarah and find out what she's looking for in her investments now. So stay with us. Now, back to Kim McNicholas on Innovation. Welcome back to the show. We have one of the most sought-after investors in all of the of Brazil, soon the world, I really believe. Um, she's one of the most humble people um, as well, but I think that she should be out in the forefront because she's amazing. It's Veronica Sarah. We met through the Extreme Tech Challenge, uh, which is the world's largest startup competition in partnership with CES, which is the world's largest consumer electronics show in Las Vegas, as well as Sir Richard Branson. We have the finals on his island. She's been a judge the past few years, and she is now the judge's chair as well, selecting the next generation of judges. So, Veronica, thank you so much. Before the break, we were talking about your history and, and a lot of your investments, your home run that you hit and I, I, I'm really curious, you know, back when you first started versus now, what was the criteria that you used to make your investments then versus what you're using now? What has stayed the same and what's different? The, one of the most important things um, for, for an investor is to really find the right entrepreneur to back so many times, you know, if, if you're looking just at the company, the concept, or the size of the market, um, I would say that that is always a second part of the of, of the big picture because if you don't have the right partner, the right person running it, uh, everything can go wrong. And and in fact, if you can afford it, it's it's you you should only be in business with with good people, right? That you trust, that you can <laughs> well, you communicate hope. with. Then list, that listen, that um, that somewhat, you know, are big dreamers, but also have their feet on the ground. You know, they're not going to take your money and start paying themselves big salaries or, or, or doing something crazy with it. So I think the big difference right now is that, um, and, and that comes a little bit of, I didn't change that much in, in, in a sense, but I think valuation is something that I've always been very, very conscious about. And so what I've done more over time is I'm, I'm much more disciplined in terms of even if I like something a lot, if I think the value is, is a little bit over the roof, I will not invest because I think that if things for any reason go wrong and, and things sometimes do go wrong even uh, because of outside events or you know, things that you cannot control, 
there's always a path for survival right. uh, on your return. And, and, and if you don't follow that, that's an issue. And I think particularly for emerging markets, that's very, very important. Can you talk a little bit more? That's a question I get a lot from uh, people who are listening. They don't they watch they watch the show ABC Shark Tank. Many of them. They always say, well, what is this whole valuations thing and how can we figure it out? So I think valuations, you know, depending on where you are, uh, you will have to use different criteria. Mm-hmm. But, but what, what I normally use is, so, you know, depending on the stage of the company, obviously, because if it's very early stage, they're not going to have a lot of numbers to show or whatever they show you, they're going to change. But um, I think the valuation uh, issue is, you know, you need to have something that gives the entrepreneur enough percentage and motivation to continue to run the business. Mm -hmm. It should be something where, and and, and this is extremely critical, sometimes when the valuation is too high, or let's say a lot of VCs just give them, you know, high valuations and then have those, you know, return multiples on their own money, which precludes them from doing future rounds, you know, the structures end up um, tight, sort of uh, putting the company in a position that is very tough for future fundraisers. Um, That, for example, was one of the things that even had Snapchat when they were going public. One of the discussions was, why are the two founders trying to keep control, you know, issuing a, a separate class of shares? And whoever read the background could understand that early on when they were still very young, they had an investor who I think, you know, had all these rights, which hurt them in terms of doing future rounds. Mm. So I think the first thing we have to look at is aligning yourself with the, with the entrepreneur. And part of that is really coming up with a reasonable valuation, because otherwise you run the risk of not being able to raise the next round because your value was too high. And people will look and say, well, but where are the milestones? So what did you achieve? Why do you think you're worth that amount of money? Mm-hmm. So what I would recommend to an entrepreneur is be reasonable because that can come back to, to haunt you. And the most important choice you make is really choosing your partner. So that investor that you get is not just the money, but is also the value add, um, you know, being there for the good and the bad and uh, really understanding your business and complimenting you on things that you do not have access to, be it, you know, access to clients, be it access to, you know, some specific know-how or even markets. And speaking of advice for entrepreneurs, we do have a couple callers uh, on the line right now. First off, we have Michael. He's the co-founder and CEO at Carely, and they say we improve the healthcare experience for the millions of families caring for a loved one by connecting those families to one another and to their health care provider. Michael, welcome. Hi, Kim. Hi, and Veronica's on the line. So give us your, you know, one-line pitch and, and what you want to ask Veronica as well. Yeah, sure. So thanks, uh, thanks Veronica, for doing this. This is, uh, this is really cool. Um, so so the, the one-line pitch is just to build on what Kim mentioned a second ago about what we do. We're really, our aim is connectivity, uh, and it's connectivity around family caregivers supporting a loved one going through a healthcare crisis, and then connectivity in connecting that care circle to uh, the healthcare industry, whether it's their care provider, be it hospital, doctor's office, nursing home, 
or to resources uh, and information that they may not have easy access to. So all about connectivity and making sure that the healthcare experience is a positive one for families. Um, How do you are, actually do that? Is it, a, is it through an app? Is it through sort of a, a social network? How, how do you connect them? Yeah, so it, it's very much like a, social, like a private social network for family caregivers. Um, it's, it is an app. It's mobile-based. Uh, and then the connection to providers happens kind of on a platform basis. So how are you getting the word out there? What is your traction? Yeah, our traction is, is fairly good. So we've got about 630 providers paying us now oh, wow. on a monthly subscription basis. Um, and that's all over the United States. And we're going to be moving into the U.K. Um, later this year. Um, uh, and, and right now, our primary distribution model for users is through our provider partners. So uh, providers, be it a home care company, a hospice organization, a hospital, a nursing home, are introducing families to Carely so that they can, you know, use it to communicate around their loved one and also connect to that provider. So it's a really interesting model uh, we've created. Um, so we have about uh, two minutes you. left for for Veronica yeah, to actually sure. answer the question. So what is your question <laughs> yeah. for her? Yeah. So so you know, as as you are uh, reviewing an investment opportunity, um, you know, especially in the early stages, that seed A, uh, maybe B round. What kind of milestones are you looking for outside of just revenue um, at, at those very at those different rounds? What kind of mm-hmm. milestones are you looking for a company to have accomplished or planning to accomplish? Yeah. So I was talking very briefly about that earlier. I think the, the first milestone is you building, you know, a relatively uh, good team. I'm not saying a big team, but a qualified team for what you want to accomplish. And many times the companies don't have capital to do that or to hire more expensive ones. So it's when I say team, it's not just people working for you full time, but it's either affiliated, you know, you might want to have an advisory board, you might want to have, um, you know, even a mentor, or you might even want to have, you know, collaborators that are not full time, but people that you can access and that can give you, you know, the right sort of know-how and, and, and know-who for you to be able to, to reach those milestones. So first is, is the people involved, and, and very early on you many times have to borrow credibility from others to be able to set foot in, 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 in with certain meetings. So I think that, that makes a big difference. Uh, the other thing is, you know, just trying to get uh, some cases built around what you, you're trying to do. So in the case, for example, of, of what you're doing, I think – one of the, the, the metrics aside from revenue is really signing up not just the providers, but really understanding, you know, the customer and what they need and, and in those dynamics that, that they're interacting with your product, where you need to improve, and then trying to streamline that into being something that you will always update and, and, and improve. So what, what's interesting about what you're doing I think is that the type of data that you're collecting from uh, the people that are interacting as uh, time goes by will become extremely valuable, you know, because it's exactly, you know, how they behave, it's mm-hmm. where they go, how many times they interact. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, you know, it might be the outcome and, and, and other things. So just knowing, you know, that these people spend so much time and that it, in, in something that's very important uh, which is health and caring uh, about a loved one, 
you know, all of those dynamics and their decision-making, that data will be very important. And so in addition to the people, you know, early on, it's just showing that your tool is ready to capture the value that you're creating from very early on um, and so that you have that inside your strategy. And I think the other one is probably trying to set up some very important partnerships that can help you scale very quickly. And so you can borrow, as I was saying before, the credibility of some of these um, partnerships and say, hey, you know, I'm partnering with, I don't know, AIG on some life insurance or I'm partnering with so-and-so with United Health or whoever you're partnering with. And so an investor can look and then say, okay, if he can do this. Then he uh, could pretty much do anything. Yeah, you can grow a lot and this is what it will look like. So it will help them get a view of the future. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling in. We'll have more callers to have questions for Veronica in just a moment. So stay with us. Now, back to Kim McNicholas on innovation. Welcome back to the show. We have Veronica Serra, the most sought-after investor in all of Brazil, and I think soon the world. And she's also our judges chair for the Extreme Tech Challenge, the world's largest startup competition. If you want more on the competition, go to ExtremeTechChallenge.com. We have callers who have questions. Uh, first on the line, Veronica, we have Ethan Kursat. He's co-founder of Aware, which is creating driver fatigue solutions and safety integrations. Ethan, thank you so much for calling in. Hi, hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you both. Tell us really quickly what you guys do. Yep, so quickly. We are aware driver fatigue solutions, and for trucking companies specifically who need a simple Mm -hmm. solution to prevent prevent fatigue-related crashes, our product is going to keep the drivers alert behind the wheel. We have an adaptive, it's an easy-to-use system, and it can provide real-time alerts in a non-intrusive way inside the hub of a truck. How does it work? Is it something that's right. plugged into the person's, like, I don't know, wrist? or? Yep, and so that's a really good question because it's actually a non-contact device that uses uh, facial recognition, which um, I know you're familiar with because I, I read that you were a Snapchat investor. So um, we're using facial recognition software. And um, the part that we have, our technology that we believe is protectable, is uh, the ability to read those inputs and then have our device uh, recognize that that means fatigue. Um, So once the driver breaks a a certain threshold, it'll provide an alert. And then, of course, we have a whole uh, data management platform Mm -hmm. uh, to go with that to provide more services. What is the tangible market? for this, the market potential for this? Uh, It's a huge market. So there are over 10 million trucks, uh, large trucks on the road in the United, just the United States today. Um, And we would like to see our devices in all those, of course, but we've, through our research, we've identified that the uh, most targetable market is going to be the larger companies that have over uh, 20 trucks in their fleets and they operate on long-distance routes, and there's over a little bit over 40,000 companies in the United States, but as I mentioned, these are uh, big companies with a lot of trucks and a lot of capital mm. uh, to invest in uh, systems like this. But just as a quick disclaimer, we're actually a student startup team. I myself oh. am still an in, in undergrad, uh, and then my partner, he just graduated recently. Um, so we are working on building up our traction. We're heavily favored in our school's incubation program. We just went to the finals for the 
New York State business model competition. Uh, we have a lot of support behind us. We have great uh, connections, great advisors, uh, but really the thing we're lacking right now is uh, manpower and then actual tangible uh, resources. So, of course, um, you know, cash capital, uh, that type of thing, which we'll need to do product development. So what's your question for Veronica? Yes. So my question would be, so for companies at our stage, obviously it's very early. We're still in that kind of death valley of student teams. Uh, when we're faced with heavy competition from already developed companies who are doing similar things, uh, what are some best practices for us to succeed and separate ourselves and move uh, literally as quickly as we can? Uh, you mentioned before uh, building partnerships. I won't disclose any names, but we have uh, verbal agreements for pretty big trucking companies to test our product for us. Um, but we just need to move a lot faster so that we can um, get the product more tangible so that we can actually hand it to them. Yeah. Uh, so just any tips for moving as quickly as possible? Yeah, so I think I think one of the things, I, I think the fact that you're small, you can be more, more agile and creative. So uh, the first thing, I would try to uh, really see if you're, the way you position your product is something that is actually different or not than uh, the other products that exist out there that, that are your competitors. So, for example, the first thing I would do is if you had to say in one line what you do, uh, how would you how would you say it, and and why is it different? So it reminded me when I read your 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 paragraph here that I read a quote the other day saying life is a result of your choices, um, and here you know it's this is a choice for life, so you you better choose the right choice. So for your customers. They cannot go wrong in, in, in choosing the best solution because they're talking about lives of people. But what came up to my mind here is, you know, when a truck driver is about to, to go to, to, to sleep or to faint or just to pass out from, from fatigue, that probably comes, has, has an origin. So what I would do to be different is try to interview with one of these partners as much truck drivers as you can and, and try to find the common grounds of, you know, what takes them to that fatigue level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would even do something very creative. Let's say, you know, does it happen normally after they have a meal? Or, you know, are the truck drivers who actually sleep uh, have an average weight that is uh, overweight? Or, you know, is it, is it in certain times of the day or of the night? And, and try to find the data points of when this happens and then in addition to having your alert, which is something that is more reme- remediative rather than – it prevents the accident, but it's actually remediating a situation in which he's already in. Would there be a way of him checking boxes and trying to, to, for you to alert him before he even gets into that stage of, of being very tired? You know, so let's say, you know, if he's eating over X or if he's – you know, under uh, whatever, a certain route uh, because of the way that even the highway is or what are the data points you could provide that driver or the company that would help them say, hey, this is a path where there is more risk or, or, or less risk. So I try to look more at the broader context rather than just looking specifically at your tool and then take those data points and, and add intelligence to, to whatever you're selling. How does that feel, Ethan? 
I uh, definitely like the idea of it uh, getting straight to the root cause of the problem. And, of course, uh, one thing we've learned uh, is that data talks. So yes. uh, anything involved in collecting more data, I think, will help us. So think big, and we look forward to seeing how your um, your strategy evolves before the closing of the competition in August. So we're going to be watching your application. Thanks so much for calling in. Next up, we have Robert Kruger on the line. Robert, managing partner, co-founder of Less Pain Software, the makers of, is it Kino, K-Y-N-O, Kino? Uh, you can, uh, we call it Kino, but Kino. it originally was called Kino because okay. we're a German company. Gotcha. What do you do? Um, Sounds like we medical, less pain. Um, no, not really. <laughs> uh, it's just figuratively. Um, it's a media management tool that we launched last year. It's aimed at the prosumer and pro market. It's it's um, basically a productivity tool for the growing video market, ranging from filmmakers, YouTubers to journalists, TV oh, wow. channels, and marketing companies. Wow. And what is, where are you at in the process of creating this software? Uh, we, we launched sales last year. And um, what's your traction? Um, it's great. We, were, uh, we got really great reviews by, uh, I think, four of the five biggest filmmaking communities. We were chosen product of the year uh, by the platform newsshooter.com and got cover coverage by uh, the major ones like nofilmschool.com, Red Shark, Cinema 5D. And, uh, well, basically the visibility and press opened a lot of doors for us um, in the prosumer and enterprise markets, and that's what we're building on right now, um, looking at strategic partnerships because uh, a lot of people um, who didn't know us one year ago wanted to talk to us now. Are you already capitalizing on all of the attention that you've gotten so far? Absolutely. Um, we're, we're not, I mean, capitalizing uh, not in a, in a financial okay. sense as far as investment is concerned because we're all self-financed so far. Um, but we, we're, we're being approached by people and uh, let's say we're, we're gauging our options at the moment. And coming up right here on Kim McNichols on Innovation, you'll have a question for Veronica. Hopefully she can help you drive your company forward. So stay with us. Now, back to Kim McNicholas on Innovation. Welcome back to the show. We have Veronica Sarah, the most sought-after investor in all of Brazil, soon the world. I love introducing you like that, Veronica. <laughs> I love it. Um, we have Robert Kruger, who is still on the line with Less Pain Software. Robert, really quickly, what's your question for Veronica? All right. Um, product quality and size of market are two things, but market access is, uh, in our experience of this past year, a key success factor and often a difficult thing for startups. What would be your top recommendations for startups regarding uh, market access? So I think one of the, the most common things we see is you know, people who know very much their product and are very technical um, and believe in a lot of what they're doing, but it's very hard for them to show to a buyer how that really will impact them, what are the benefits and so forth. So I think two of the things you could do early on is try to get your tool to be used by somebody who could be a sort of a role model user or a high-quality user who, would, um, who you could basically refer to when you're trying to sell to others. So let's say that, you know, it's either a famous filmmaker or it's um, a director um, or 
some taste that you have, you know, from uh, full end how they are using your system and how they benefited from it. And I think the benefit should not just be somebody just saying uh, that it's great, but really maybe talking about how much time it saves. Um, because yeah. oftentimes, you know, all of these tools, and, and, and I think that's probably the reason you ended up creating this, the moment you start having a hassle and doing something is when it suddenly pops up that the opportunity is there. It's like, oh, my God, this is taking so long. Why doesn't this exist? Why isn't there something that makes life easier on, on this front? So really trying to empathize with the end user and, and show them that you're really tackling that problem is very important. And the other one is that somebody who's well-known and who would, be, who would have like a high criteria in selecting um, you know, a partner to help solve this is endorsing what you're doing. So that's what it, when, when I talk about the case, that's what I mean. So if you can get a big name, that would be great. But if you could also get a, a not so well-known name, but really have them talk very openly and empathize with, with people who go through the same, I think people will, will buy into your product. We have four minutes and about four more callers. Thank you so much, Robert. We have Jean on the line right now. Jean, awardx.io, a powerful flight search engine that simplifies how to redeem frequent flyer miles and mileage, as well as credit card points. What is your question for Veronica? We have to do this very quickly. Sure. So my question is, although awardx.io already shows real-time availability for 17 award booking programs, and also detailed book instructions. So we feel that it's a very strong base already, but we also have a laundry of a list of features that we would like to add. Uh, but the question is, do we continue focusing on developing more features to make uh, waterx.io even more powerful tool, or should we focus on client acquisition? Okay. I think um, I don't know how the competitive landscape is in, is, is in your sort of area, um, and if there are many others, but if you have to differentiate yourself, I would definitely look into um, bringing on uh, on board some features that nobody else has. And then once you have that, you should go full-fledged in, in, in acquiring more users. Now, I don't know if when you're trying to sell what you sell, you need those users exactly because they're going to be the ones who are putting in the inventory that will be sold. So then I think you would have to do probably both. Um, so it really depends. I don't have the data points on your business. But I would say the first and more, most important thing is, you know, when you're selling something, what is the value proposition? Mm-hmm. And if you're doing something better than others, uh, it has to be significantly better for you to differentiate yourself. And then after a couple of months, you will have to put another layer of innovation because people will cap- catch up with you. They will copy you. Um, the other thing I would do is, is just try to do some creative marketing through through partnerships again instead of just pounding dollars and, and uh, of pure marketing, but do it with somebody who is, is ready to who, who, where, where there's a win-win with you. So let's say either airlines that are trying to acquire uh, new customers that aren't there and you know it might be the case that you might sell the points, but you might also have, uh, people putting inventory that, that's not available. Um, just think creatively about how to differentiate yourself. 
Thank you so much, Jean. Next up, we have Kieran Bagatra with Protect Box. Kieran, really quickly, what is it that you do? It looks like a cyber comparison website for small and medium businesses. Not sure what that Hello? means. Hi, Kieran. Kieran, what's Hi. your question? Um, it's sure. It's um, uh, it is a, comp- a cyber comparison website that I'm building. So a compare the market plus a sky scanner for um, technology people and processes. And I've effectively um, ended up building this alone with the help of sort of freelance graduate developers. Wow. Because I've really struggled to find CTOs and I've built it, um, you know, very quickly and I've sort of but piecemeal um, because a lot of them, um, a lot of the traditional sort of developers, they've just sort of dismissed the fact that I'm not a software developer or an engineer Mm. and and I'm actually trying to build a completely different user journey. But I've actually got corporate partners and governments, um, particularly in the Middle East, who are offering to endorse me as a conduit to cyber regulation in the region, as well as um, also joint PR and marketing from insurers and accountants. So this is actually my, um, I've kind of stuck at it regardless of what I've been told that it couldn't be done and I've done it. Good for you. Um, And I'm actually ex-government. Thank you. Um, And I I knew you'd appreciate that from over in the States. (laughs) Um, I'm also ex-investor and I came second for Woman of the Year in the Cyber Awards. But despite all of that, I've had a lot of um, tech VCs. We only have... We only have 30 seconds left in the show. I sure, feel sure. terrible. Um, no. we, I have a feeling we're going to have to connect both of you right afterwards. Veronica, <gasps> do you mind if I put you both in touch? Because this time just flies. Okay. I'm sure you both want to talk anyway, because I have a feeling there's a grander story here that I also want to hear. Maybe we can stay on the line afterwards, if you don't mind. And we'll also put your answer sure. in the show notes. So both of you stay on the line for a few minutes. We'll connect you really quick and we'll have your answer in the show notes. I have Gabby here, my intern. She's amazing. And she's going to make sure everybody knows your answer. Hope everyone has a great weekend. Thank you for tuning in. And of course, we're going to have Veronica back. She is She's just amazing. Take care, everyone. This has been Kim McNicholas on Innovation. You can connect with Kim on Facebook forward slash Kim McNicholas or email Kim McNicholas at gmail.com. Be sure to join us again next Friday at 1 for Kim McNicholas on Innovation. This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.